Morning. We are continuing our series through the book of Matthew. Specifically, we're working through sort of who Jesus is in the, the couple of chapters, like 14, 15, 16. Uh, today, we're talking about Jesus as the rejected king. As people that live in the United States, we're very comfortable with rejecting kings. That's kind of our, our deal. We started out that way. Uh, in fact, there was a point where the people that were kind of in charge of the country at the time sat down and wrote a letter to a king and said, we don't want you here anymore, essentially, right? Like, you can go away. We're not talking to you anymore. Uh, and they actually had a list of 27 reasons why they weren't going to listen to him, right? Like, we've, we've got that as a part of our history. And that's fine if you're dealing with George III. It's different if you're dealing with Jesus as king. There's a different... There's a different attitude there because Jesus is a perfect king and he does everything right. And if you write a list of 27 reasons why you're rejecting Jesus, I promise you all of them are way more about you having a bad attitude than about anything that Jesus did wrong. That's Jesus didn't do anything wrong, right? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk today about Jesus uh, being the king a little bit and the fact that he was rejected as king as he was on this earth. Uh, and really, that sort of sets the stage for us to talk about Jesus as a rejected king that, that we push away sometimes, that we see other people around us push away. My big idea today is this. Accepting Jesus as our king is the only fix for our rebellious hearts. And we do have rebellious hearts. We'll get to that as well. Uh, Matthew 15, we're going to start off talking about the type of person that Jesus is, the type of king that he is. So Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 32. Uh, before I read. So if you remember last week, uh, the disciples were with Jesus in a foreign land. They weren't in Israel. They were somewhere else. And Jesus was healing and people were praising the God of Israel. That's kind of how we assume that they weren't in Israel. So that's where Jesus is. This is the end of that teaching slash healing section. We get to verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So when we see this, the thing that jumps off the page is that Jesus starts off with, I have compassion. Right? Jesus starts this with saying that he's having compassion on these people. Again, these aren't Israelites. These aren't his people. These aren't the people that he was called to be the king of specifically. And yet he looks at them and he says, wow, they're hungry. I need to deal with that. I need to fix that. He has compassion on the people. Uh, the miracle is really similar to the miracle that, that Steve talked about in chapter 14, right? Where it was, it was five loaves and two fishes and it was 5,000 men instead of 4,000 men. So Sometimes we look at those two stories and we're like, well, why, why are there two stories of feeding 5,000 or 4,000 and then or 5,000 and then 4,000? And I think part of it is just <laughs> there was two times when there were crowds that needed to be fed, 
Jesus didn't look at this crowd and be like, well, this is a different crowd. I already did this miracle, so I'm not going to duplicate the miracle. Like, can't do the same thing twice. He just looks at this group of people and like, man, they are hungry. They have been listening. I have been healing. It's time for, for us to all eat, right? So that's what he did. He had compassion on the people, and he fed them. There's also an element where Jesus instituting it, the way that he does it, he just starts off and goes, hey, disciples, by the way, I have compassion on these people. Don't send them away. Because that was the disciples' response every time when Jesus was like, hey, these people need help. And the disciples were like, can we send them away? Can we make them someone else's problem? Jesus was like, no. He started off with that. I'm not going to send them away. I have compassion on them. How are we going to solve this? And so some of this is also the disciples' learning what Jesus is capable of and how they need to trust him. So really when we get to this section, this is about Jesus as king, but we have to understand who Jesus was to trust Jesus as king. And if we start out with Jesus has compassion on people that need help, that's a good way for us to move into understanding Jesus as king. So a couple of takeaways as we move forward. First of all, the disciples aren't quite sure yet who Jesus is. They're still learning. They're still in process. Jesus is capable of working miracles. He can multiply bread. We've proved that a couple times. He can heal people. We've proved that multiple times. So Jesus is capable of working miracles, and Jesus is compassionate. And if all those things are true, then we have a pretty good understanding of the type of person that Jesus is and the type of king that he would be. He's compassionate. He's teaching his disciples. He's healing people. Like, he's got the ability to do all those things. You're like, okay, I've got a pretty good idea based on this story of the type of king that Jesus is. So with that in our minds, let's move into chapter 16. So chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, we're going to start with. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. So this is Jesus being rejected by the people that should have been accepting him as their king. So if Jesus was going to be the king of Israel on earth at that time, these are the two groups that should have been sort of leading the people to be like, he's the Messiah, we need to follow him. So there's, there's two groups that are mentioned here. We've met the Pharisees a bunch of times at this point. We haven't really met the Sadducees. We met them a little bit with John the Baptist a year ago, and John the Baptist called them a bunch of snakes. Jesus and the John the Baptist tend to agree on things, so you know that Jesus isn't particularly fond of the Sadducees. So let me just give you a quick review. The Pharisees are religious fundamentalists. They've got lists of rules that you have to follow in order to make sure that they think that you're right with God. And there's extra rules on top of the other rules, and there's extra rules about those rules, and there's a whole book of all the extra rules that they want to talk about. So they are the fundamentalists. They're like, we have to follow all the rules in order to get God to love us. The Sadducees aren't really as religious. They're the political ruling party. They have some religious element to them, but their biggest thing is they're in charge and they've got the political power locally and they like that. And so they're, they're good Jews, meaning they follow the, the law, but they don't really care that much about it. What's really important to them is the Romans have to like them 
and the people have to listen to them. And so they can kind of live as like the middle management between the empire and the actual people. And they had a lot of money. That's how you get political power a lot of the time, right? Like you have a lot of money and you buy political power, right? That's, so they're wealthy, they've got political power, they like both their money and their political power, and they don't like people that threaten those things. So this is before the separation of church and state. So keep that in mind. So every political party has a religious element to it, and every religious group has a political element to them. Politics and religion live together in, in this day and age, in that day and age, right? And so there's no sort of separation there. These are both political parties, but the Sadducees are actually the political ruling power. The Pharisees are a political party only because that has to be a part of who they are. They're more religious. The Sadducees have a religious element because that's what's expected. So when you see Pharisees and Sadducees, don't think this is the Catholics and the Baptists getting together, okay? It's not two different religious groups that kind of disagree. Think of this as a Chicago Democrat with an Irish background and an Amish dude that thinks it's a sin to vote getting together and agreeing on politics and religion. That doesn't happen. <laughs> like, that's, those people, you're like, how did you guys even meet? How, where, how did that conversation come up? What is, what is this about? These are two completely different groups with completely different attitudes about a lot of things, and yet they both don't like Jesus. They've both decided that Jesus is a threat. The Pharisees don't like Jesus because he doesn't obey their rules, and he seems to have a really good relationship with God. The Sadducees don't like Jesus because he seems to have political power. The people all follow him, and yet he's not going to support their system. He said that they're wrong. And so this isn't a group of people that are coming to say, hey, Jesus, we're curious about your teaching on a particular issue. They're saying, we don't like you, and we want to criticize you. So do something special, and then we'll tell you why you're wrong. That's the attitude. That's why they're coming to Jesus. And so Jesus' response is basically, I'm not doing that. <laughs> like, I'm not playing that your game just so you can be mad at me. What he actually says is, have you paid attention to the sky and understood what that means, right? So the old sailor's rhyme, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning, sailors take warning. I don't know if that comes from this, but this is the same idea, right? Jesus is like, pay attention, look around. You know what the weather is like based on what the sky is. We don't do that as much. We all have apps on our phone that tell us what the weather's going to be. So we don't look at the sunrise to figure out how the weather's going to be. But they did. They had to. So Jesus is saying, if you can look around and tell what the weather's going to be, then you should be able to figure out what's going on here. You should be able to tell that I am the Messiah, that I've been healing these people. Like, what part of healing people makes you unsure that I'm the Messiah? What part of raising people from the dead makes you think, oh, maybe God's not in that? Like, what, what is the thing that Jesus is doing that confuses them about whether or not he's from God and that he's acting for God? Like, there's, there's no part of Jesus's things that he's doing that is anything other exactly than what God would call him to do. So then when he says, yeah, I'm God, I'm the Messiah, I'm here in the flesh, and they're like, ah, we're not sure. Like, what's, where does that come from? And so Jesus is just pointing out the sort of obvious flaw. If you guys don't believe the miracles I've already done, why would you think that one more miracle is going to fix this? And so he says, you're going to get a special miracle. It's going to be the sign of Jonah. And then he just leaves it at that. So we've talked about the sign of Jonah before, but just to refresh your memory, Jonah was the Old Testament prophet that got swallowed by a whale. 
and was inside the whale for three days and then got spit out on the ground. And so Jesus is saying, there's going to come a point where I'm going to be gone for three days and you're going to think I'm pretty much dead. And then I'm going to come back. And that's going to prove that, you're, that I'm the Messiah. So Jesus is essentially saying he is the Messiah and he is going to prove it, but he's not going to prove it in a way that they're going to be impressed with. And when we look back, we are like, sign of Jonah. Okay, well, Jesus died, he was buried, he spent three days in the ground, and then he rose from the dead, and he called it. That's why we believe Jesus is the Messiah, guys. <laughs> like, at the core of it, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, everything else is pretty suspicious. But because Jesus said, I'm going to die and raise from the dead, and only God can actually do that, and then Jesus actually did that, like, yep, he's God, that's pretty much the only answer we have. The problem here is that the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have already decided they're not going to listen to Jesus. They've made the decision that they've got rules that God's going to follow and they've got power and control that God needs to submit to. And so Jesus doesn't do what they want him to. Therefore, he cannot possibly be God. They've got a list of things that they think that God ought to do. And Jesus not cooperating means that they're not going to listen to him. And that's the exact opposite attitude of what God actually wants. Right, if we look back at Psalm 51, the psalmist says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So if we want a relationship with God, then the starting point has to be, God, you're the one that's in charge. I can't approach God and tell him what he has to do to make sure that I'm on the right team. It has to be, okay, God, I'm a broken person and you're God, so you're obviously perfect and I'm going to submit to you. That has to be the starting point of a relationship with God. And when we come to God in humility, admitting that he's God and we're not, then suddenly that's the attitude that's necessary for God to have a relationship with us. If you look at what Paul says in Romans 10, he says this, if you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord, so there's an element of ruling there, right? Like Lord, that's somebody that's in charge. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So being saved means you've been freed from your sin and you have a relationship with Jesus. And that doesn't start with, I'm in charge, I'm going to tell God what to do. That starts with, Jesus, you're God. I need to admit that you're God. And I need to honestly believe that you're God and that you raised from the dead. And that allows me to have that relationship with you. So Jesus was God in eternity past. He came to earth in order to fix our mess. And he was killed by the same religious guys that he's talking to now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was killed by them, and that death for a perfect man, God-man, meant that the rest of us don't have to suffer the same fate. We're free from the punishment of death for our sin because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And so we come to him in faith, and we're like, Lord, I'm a sinner, I'm broken. I need you to be the king, the Lord of my life, and I honestly believe that you your resurrection saves me from the dead. That's the thing that starts our relationship with him. But that has to, it has to start there with humility and with confession and with repentance and saying, God, you know, and I don't, and you're in charge and I'm not, and you're the one that's perfect and I'm not. It has to start there. And then that moves us from being sinners in rebellion against the perfect king to part of the family of God. 
We have a relationship with him, and we can spend eternity in, in right relationship with him. So my question for you is, here is this. Have I ever accepted Jesus as my king? Because if you've never accepted Jesus as your king, most of the rest of the stuff doesn't make a difference. This is the starting point. It has to be. And when we start with admitting, I'm a sinner, and Jesus, you need to be in charge of my life, that changes everything. Remember, accepting Jesus as our king is the only fix for our rebellious hearts. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, though, they are suspicious of Jesus and they reject him. And so that means Jesus isn't going to have a relationship with them. Right? So the response for Jesus is he left them and departed. It's a double leaving. That means that he's standing there having the conversation with him. He's like, you know what? No, we're not doing this. I'm shutting this down and I'm walking away. And then also I'm sailing across the lake because I'm not doing this. Like he's really done. He's not having this conversation with them. So verse five, Matthew 16, verse five. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves saying, we brought no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not yet, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of the bread, but the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So Jesus is having this conversation, another conversation with his disciples, trying to help them move in the right direction, right? And so he's saying, hey, beware of the leaven. And they're thinking it's bread and Jesus is hungry. And Jesus is like, you guys, you missed it. I do not care about bread. I can clearly do whatever I want with bread. We can have enough bread. Don't worry about the bread. The point is, leaven is a thing that, first of all, is uh, it's a corrupting influence. Like, so leaven is yeast, right? The yeast is breaking stuff down. It breaks down the sugar, and then it makes the bread get bigger. And then also, it goes through the whole everything. So when Jesus says, beware of the yeast of the, or the leaven of the, 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 scribe, or the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he's saying, beware of a small corrupting influence that can, in, that can change everything. Right? So this has the potential to grow into something that's really bad. So be aware of some of these attitudes. So I'm going to use two examples based on the Pharisees and the Sadducees' specific issues, and then I'm going to jump into sort of largely how that might apply in different ways today. So for the Pharisees, don't reject Jesus because of your rules. So the Pharisees, we've seen already a couple times through this series, they don't like Jesus because he doesn't obey the rules, their rules specifically. And their attitude is sort of, listen, Jesus, we put a lot of effort into making up rules. You need to respect those, right? <laughs> and Jesus is talking to them. They seem like they're on the right team. They seem like they're trying to follow God honestly and sincerely, and yet they've added this other thing that it takes to have a relationship with God. And so for the Pharisees, the right relationship with God doesn't rely on, let's come to God and be humble and, and submit to him as king. 
a right relationship with God for them involves, okay, here's the four, the 600 rules, and then we've got a bunch of other rules to protect those rules, and you have to follow all the rules, and there's some more rules too. Like, they just, it's all about the rules, and if you follow the rules, then God loves you, and if you don't follow the rules, then sorry, you're on the outside. And we slide into this, not the same way, but sometimes really subtly. We prioritize things spiritually that are not actually Jesus. We prioritize things spiritually that are something else. And then we somehow make those things the most important thing rather than Jesus. And what happens is we come to a point where we have to confront the fact that these things are not Jesus and we have to either throw out some of the rules or we have to get rid of Jesus, right? And that's a decision point because if you get rid of Jesus, like that's a bad decision. You've made your decision and that's a bad one. So think of it this way. Christians can have different opinions on whether or not it's okay to top shop at Target. Right? Like, there's two opinions on that, but neither one of those decide whether or not you're going to heaven. Sisters in Christ can have different honest opinions about Taylor Swift. That's controversial today. I know, I recognize this. Brothers in Christ can differ on whether or not their kids should be in a particular school or not. Like, they can make different choices regarding their kids and still both be following Jesus. And this one's going to be tough for some of you. People that genuinely follow Jesus are going to vote for every single party come November. That's not the same as having a relationship with Jesus. That's different. And I'm not saying that your relationship with Jesus doesn't impact how you vote. What I'm saying is is that's not the same as having a relationship with Jesus. It's not a one-to-one. We, as sinful, fallen human beings, tend to make value judgments based on our culture. And Jesus is saying, listen, the right way to have a relationship with God is a humility and a broken and contrite spirit. It's not anything else. And so we can't look at what other people are doing and say, well, they clearly don't have a relationship with Jesus because they did this thing. No, that's not it. Are they humble before God? And they can be wrong in a bunch of stuff, the same way that I'm wrong in a bunch of stuff, and still have a relationship with God. And what happens is that we set up rules that aren't God's rules, that are separate. And we say, all right, if you're going to follow these rules, then you're a follower of Jesus. And if you're not going to follow these rules, then you don't follow Jesus. But Jesus was compassionate. He didn't draw lines about who he was going to love. He's like, everybody needs to come to me and be humble. Now, there's implications for behavior for that. I'm not saying there aren't. What I'm saying is salvation, coming to Jesus in faith, doesn't rely on the things that you do. It's about what Jesus has already done. And so the reality for the Pharisees with their their religion was more about the things that they set up than it was about an actual relationship with God. My question here is this. When do I struggle to have compassion for people because of my rules? Because here's the thing. If I'm a sinner that's saved by grace, I can't look at another sinner and say, well, that sin's too bad. Jesus doesn't love you. Like, I don't get to do that. Like, I can't say I have compassion on homeless people unless they're doing drugs or they don't have a job and they don't have compassion. Like, you don't get to say that. It's, Jesus is like, yeah, we're all sinners and we all struggle with sin. And so, therefore, all of us need a savior from sin, and that's Jesus. So maybe there's some things that we all need to sort out in our lives. Yes, that's, all, that's 100% true for all of us. And yet, it still doesn't change the fact that Jesus loves us and wants us to come to him. 
That's the Pharisees. That was the easy one. Sure, I promise you it was. The second one, the, the Sadducees. Don't reject Jesus for control. The warning for the Sadducees, I think, is partially based on their power, their wealth, and their control, and they don't want to give that up to have a relationship with Jesus. And this idea that the, the coming king would just work with them on all of that, that was their idea, and they didn't, they didn't want to get rid of that. And when we have our own ideas about what we want or what we think should be right, and we have control, we don't want Jesus to threaten our control. Russell Moore is the editor of Christianity Today. He says this. Sorry, I don't have a quote. It's just a story. He tells a story about a pastor that he met that was at a church and started preaching through the Sermon on the Mount. And his congregation came to him and said, we don't want you to preach that anymore. He's like, why don't you want me to preach this anymore? That makes Jesus seem like he's soft. We don't want that Jesus. We want a different Jesus. It's like, guys, this is what Jesus said. I can't, I can't preach anything else. Like, it's just what it is. And that feels a little extreme. Like, that's a church that has gone pretty far in a particular direction. But a lot of times, we do that selectively with stuff that Jesus has said rather than all of it. Like, Jesus says to forgive. And I agree we should forgive. However, that one person, I don't think I'm there. I think I want to hold my grudge. Right? Jesus says, don't make money your top priority. And you're like, I understand that that's good in general, but for me... For me, I'm going to get ahead with this dollar amount. Like Jesus said, love my neighbor. Yeah, but you don't know how terrible my neighbors are. <laughs> I don't think I can love them. Or I know that Jesus said for me to love unconditionally and to sacrifice myself, but also nobody loves me like that, so I don't think I'm going to do that for anybody else. And all of those are things that Jesus really specifically said that we need to do, and we're not willing to obey because that means I have to give up a little bit of control and I don't really want to do that. And this might be about initially coming to Jesus and knowing what Jesus expects from you. And this might be the fact that you've been following Jesus for a couple of years and you're like, I know what the next step is and I don't want to take it because that one looks painful and hard. And there's whole lists of things that Jesus asks us to do. And a lot of times we look at a bunch of them and we're like, yeah, no, that's fine, I can do that. And there's a couple that just really kind of get us. We're like, nah, I don't know if I'm ready for that yet. And ignoring the things that Jesus asked me to do is disobeying. So my question here is this, where do I choose to disobey Jesus? Where do I decide that that verse doesn't apply to me? Where do I disobey God's clear instruction because I want something different? We have a habit of choosing to do the things that we want to do and then telling God to buzz off for the rest of it. That's sin, guys. That's disobeying God. And a lot of times those things, we do that because this thing seems better. But ultimately, if we really believe that Jesus is God, then we know that that can't be true because God said no, doesn't say no to good things for us. He says no to bad things for us. And we have to accept the fact that he's the king and he knows and he understands and that we need to walk away from that. The third one, and this is maybe more applicable to us on an ongoing basis, is don't reject Jesus by drifting away. The common denominator between the Sadducees and the Pharisees was, I don't want Jesus to tell me what to do. And that's where they were at. 
And that's an awful thing to be unified over if that's because that's where they were. But at the same time, the, the problem with yeast is that it goes slowly and you don't necessarily recognize what's happening. Right? Rejecting Jesus tends to be a thing that emerges slowly over time. I tell him no in one area and then I get a little bit more comfortable with saying no to him and I just build a slow habit of saying no until Jesus isn't in charge of anything. Uh, about a decade ago, I was talking to a coworker that, that was an agnostic slash atheist. He wasn't really sure. And I just, I want to find out why. I'm like, so why, why do you land there? Why, what's your, what's your reason? And he said, um, the reason that he didn't believe in God was because his grandpa, who was a Christian, died of leukemia. That's kind of strange. Did your grandpa reject God? No, no, no. Grandpa said that Jesus carried him through the leukemia, and when he died, like, he got buried, like, in a, he was, his funeral was in a church, and everybody was like, praise God for seeing him through this, and he's happy now. Like, okay, well, you hang out with your grandma all the time. What does grandma think? Oh, no, grandpa loves Jesus. She goes to church every week. She's very grateful that God was faithful to them through their... So if grandma and grandpa are both okay with grandpa dying of leukemia, what's your beef? Like, that, that feels weird to me, right? Like, okay, I, I understand that sin is a present thing in the world and suffering is, is there, and I'm not saying that you didn't suffer from your grandpa's death, but if your grandpa was like, Jesus was faithful to me through the leukemia, why is it God's fault? Like, let that one go, right? Like, that doesn't, it seems inconsistent. But then I started talking about, about some other stuff. He's like, well, they took me to church, and I didn't like church when I was little. Like, I hated church, and so I didn't want to ever go. And then, you know, like, I know that God's got these expectations about how I should treat women, and I don't really want to do that. Like, I don't want to respect women. So I'm not going to, I don't want to do that. And also, he was an alcoholic, and he kind of wanted to stick with that. And he was really mad at God that there were consequences for him being an alcoholic. I'm like, you realize that you're making bad decisions, and then you're mad at God about the bad decisions that you're choosing to make. And there was a bunch of other stuff that he was angry about. But it was, it was basically the fact that when he was young, he decided that it was God's fault that anything went bad ever. And he just kind of stacked onto that all the time until he was like, yeah, I don't think I believe in God anymore. I was like, that's, that's a really sad place to be. There wasn't this one big moment. There wasn't this thing where you had a, a confrontation with God. You just didn't like any of the things that God said. And I think that's why Jesus uses the example of yeast. Because what happens is, is we allow a little bit of rebellion, a little bit of hard-heartedness to stick in our lives, and then we just don't deal with it. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. And there's suddenly all these things that we're like, well, I decided that God wasn't in charge there, so then I grabbed these other four areas back, and now I just don't really pay attention. The writer of Hebrews says this in, in Hebrews 3, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So our unbelief can lead us away from Jesus. Right? Sin is deceitful. And sin is always going to say, it's okay if you're doing this, it's fine, it's not a problem. And so if we allow sin to have that voice, that voice gets louder and louder. And biblically, sin always leads to death. So it's not actually okay. That's a lie. And if we allow that sin to creep into our lives, we get a little bit comfortable, we start lying to ourselves about it, and what happens is over time we just drift away and we're not walking with God anymore. 
And the writer of Hebrews has one solution for this. Exhort one another every day. Exhort is like encouragement, but it's a lot stronger than that. So it's not just like, hey, good job out there. It's like, yeah, you're doing great. This is awesome. Like, good job. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, listen, if you're in a Christian community, you need to be encouraging each other really enthusiastically all the time. Because what, what that means is that we're all pointing each other to Jesus all the time. And as we do that, it's a lot easier to follow Jesus if I've got three, five, seven other people around me saying, you're doing great, keep following Jesus. Keep pointed in that direction. Keep doing that. Because ultimately, Jesus is the one that we can trust. Jesus is the one that we can truly follow. And people around us that are pointing us to him help in that. Right, we said at the beginning, accepting Jesus as our king is the only way to fix our rebellious hearts. And so focusing on Jesus as our king helps us stay pointed in that direction. My application question here is this. How can I encourage those around me to walk more closely with Jesus? We started out in the beginning. We said Jesus is the compassionate one. And if we're doing our job as a community, that means a part of what we need to do is say, okay, I have to have compassion on people and I have to point people to the compassionate king. We have to accept him as the Lord of our lives. We have to do that. We have to confess our sin, admit that we're sinners, and come to him in faith. But as that happens, what we have to do is we have to turn control of our lives over to Jesus. We should do that just 100% right away, but, and, and spiritually I think that happens. But practically, it takes a lot of work and a lot of time to give every single piece of who we are back to God. So again, as we're compassionate on the people around us, then we can point them to Jesus. So what are the rules that I have that prevent me from being compassionate? How can I be compassionate for people that don't necessarily follow my rules? And then in other places, as we're compassionate, we're like, okay, but I'm in charge of this piece. I want this piece. I don't want Jesus to be in charge of that. I, I want that one. And so we have to look at where do I struggle to give up power and control? How do I let go of that control and refocus Jesus as the power and the control in my life? And then finally, as we continue to do that, we have to, have we have to encourage the people around us and say, how do I encourage the people around me to walk more closely with Jesus? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the fact that you are the one that rules, that reigns, that knows everything. I pray that as we see the example of the Pharisees and the Sadducees rejecting Jesus, that we would recognize their, their errors and that we would just follow Jesus because he's the compassionate king. He's the one that loves us. He's the one that died for us. He's the one that can change us to be more like him. I pray that that would be our heart's desire, that we would want to just follow Jesus more and more closely, and that coming out of that, we would share your love to the world, that we would be compassionate with the people around us, that we wouldn't limit your power with rules or control or any of those things, but that we would just encourage everyone around us to walk more closely with you. We pray this in your